Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. Thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your day to listen to me flap my bill. Just wanted to let you know if you have any questions about Rifles Only, Jacob Bynum, or any of the guests that have been on the podcast, you can reach out to us at ROAP at RiflesOnly.com. That's Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. And we'll get your questions and we'll get them answered. Just a reminder, we're in the middle of January right now. Uh, We've got uh, a lot of stuff coming up as far as classes here, New Hampshire, Colorado, uh, all those things are going on. We also have the brawl coming up in about a month. And so we, we've been uh, getting some very, very interesting, you know, sponsorships for that accuracy international, a couple of rifles, a couple of scopes mounts. Uh, I know Sierra sponsoring is a bunch of bullets. There's been, we've had a, a tremendous response from the, the sponsorship community out there this time. And we really, really appreciate it. So we still have slots for that match. If you want to come down and shoot it, just let us know, man. We'd love to have you. You can catch up with that at uh, www.riflesonly.com, or you can call the office, talk to Leslie, Lisa, or myself, and we can get you signed up and get you ready to go. But at any rate, I wanted to get right into it today because uh, I have a special guest, a guy I've known for a long, long time, and a little bit, little bit different from the precision rifle thing, but still a little bit part of the precision rifle thing. But I'd like to to welcome uh, Mr. Jeff Gonzalez. Say hello, Jeff. Hey. How's it going, Jacob? Good, man. Good. I thank you again for taking the time. I know that you're busy. We had to find a, a the eye of the needle to get you on here because you got a lot of stuff going on. But um, Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself. How old are you? Where are you from? Uh, wh- what's your life? How'd you get to where you are? Okay. Uh, so I was born and raised here in Central Texas. Um, on this earth now for 55 plus years, and my path, if you will. Started off right out of high school. I joined the Navy from, uh, you know, my early enlistment. I basically had back in the day, there was a thing called the delayed entry program. So I wasn't actually of age to join the Navy at the time. So I had to start the delayed entry program. The reason why I bring that up is because I didn't, I didn't tell my parents ah. about my enlistment. So they found out about. I don't know, maybe a week before I was leaving to go to boot camp is when I finally told him at the dinner table one night. How'd that go? So I left, uh, as you can expect, you know, <laughs> my mom was a uh, freak and my dad was pretty stoic uh, until I left. And then there was some, some emotions at that point, but uh, you know, it was just who, that's just kind of who I am. I, I typically keep things kind of close to the chest until the last minute. And that was uh, an example of my, my future, if you will. Well, um, before you so get in, before you get into that, um, would you, in, in high school, did you play sports or anything like that? Athletic guy? Sure. I, I was actually, it's funny that you mentioned that <clears throat> I was a swimmer and a water polo player. And I say swimmer and a water polo player because they wouldn't let me just play water polo. I can only be on the water polo team if I swam. Okay. So like any other sport, there's seasons, there's a swimming season and technically the off season to swimming season is water polo season. Okay. And, um, the funny thing about, the funny thing about it is I, I joined the swim team to learn how to swim. Mm-hmm. I grew up, uh, playing, you know, in our neighborhood pool, we had like a, a neighborhood pool that was the epicenter for all things mischievous as a youngster. Yep. <clears throat> and, um, no, you know, that, that included, you know, playing in the water, but not knowing how to swim. Right. I can remember my uh, my best friend's dad one day we were sitting we were on the side of the pool and we went over there to do something I don't remember what it was and and I had a really good plan I had a really good strategy for staying out of the deep water or you know how to get to the wall very quickly or whatever the case might be and he picks me up 
and just chucks me into the middle of the pool. I mean, just as a, you know, as a, you know, thing that you would do to kids, you know, swing them around and really, really fast and then launch them into the pool. It sounds like fun. And of course, every other kid would probably go bonkers for it. I was petrified. I landed in the middle of the water and the only thing I did was I bobbed. bobbed. (laughs) I, I sunk to the bottom of the pool and I think, you know, the pool depth was like five feet there, mm-hmm. at, you know, at that, at that pool, um, except for the deep end where we had the diving boards. And so, you know, I just bobbed from the bottom, swam up to the, or pushed my way up to the surface, got more air. And I did that all the way to the side of the pool. But it was funny because he's like, you know how to swim? I'm like, nope. <laughs> and that was when I was a kid. I was like still a youngster. Mm-hmm. And I watched all my friends swim. They all joined the swim team. I just, I don't know. I just couldn't, there was, there was some sort of aversion to me wanting to learn how to swim. So I did it. And yeah. I just kind of found workarounds to learning to play in the water. Cause I mean, I, I mean, in the summertime, you could not, there was not a day that didn't go by that we weren't in the water. We weren't in the pool. Right. So that was kind of like my childhood when I got to high school. So I played baseball. I had a, foray into soccer and i was like i'll never play that game again ever Mm -hmm. and then i just was a baseball player like a kid you know here in central texas that was it you either play football you played baseball and i played baseball i did play football in middle school but it wasn't something that was going to be a you know pursuit if you will and when i got to high school the competitive nature of baseball at that level was just something that i was like you know what i just i don't know i just i'm not sure if i want and man i've been playing since i was a peep peewee i mean yeah. like every summer that's all i did and i played select ball and i, I did all the all the traveling and all that stuff to play baseball and i loved it I, I don't regret any of it but you know i think at that point i decided all my friends were moving on to you know they didn't play baseball as long as i did so they were all joining the swim team and i just like i didn't want to get left behind so right. i did and like my first my freshman year was um literally drinking from a fire hose you, i literally drank so much water mm-hmm. learning how to swim competitively uh and it it's it, it was something that i was able to excel at you know once yeah. i once i was given the proper instruction on on how to swim i i you know my freshman year was a was a just an atrocious experience but sophomore year and definitely my junior year really kind of took to it and, and you know like i said during the off season of swimming is water polo mm-hmm. and you know it was i i love that sport so much that yeah. sport to me was if there was an any other sport i wish i could have played it would have been lacrosse yeah i didn't find lacrosse until my boys started playing lacrosse when they were younger mm-hmm. but being able to play water polo was just an amazing experience. I loved it. I didn't appreciate it so much at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until much later in the Navy that I really came to appreciate the experience that it gave me. So I swam and played water polo. And my junior year, my, um, you know, we swam at a, at a natatorium, which had, you know, four high schools that all swam under one roof. And each high school had their own coach. But then there was the district coach that mm-hmm. ran the entire swim program. And he called me into his office one day and he asked me if I'd be interested in playing or participating in the uh, modern pentathlon. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what a pentathlon was. I knew what a triathlon was, but I did yeah. not know what a pentathlon was. And I knew what a decathlon was, but mm-hmm. I did not know what a pentathlon was. So <clears throat> luckily, 
the United States Pentathlon Association is headquarters in Fort Sam Houston, which is in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, one day he took me over to Fort Sam Houston to, to the headquarters building and I got a chance to meet all the professional athletes. And it just so happened that there were two active duty SEALs that were assigned to, because remember it's Fort Sam Houston's military mm-hmm. post that were assigned to the association to compete. And I got a chance to like to meet them and nobody really knew that I had interest in the Navy and the special, you know, Naval special warfare. Nobody had any, I didn't talk about that. And, and back then there was no way of knowing about it. There wasn't the internet there. Right. When I went to the recruiter's office, there was a single piece of paper. It was a laminated sheet that had Naval special warfare on the front and hard hat divers on the back. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even like, it was just a single page of information about the SEAL teams. Right. And so when I met these guys, I mean, these guys were just studs. I was, I looked at them and I was like, I want to be like them. Yeah. And I, I, I played around with like, what did I want to do when I leave high school? Cause I knew that there was a part of me that wanted to go to college just because my parents wanted me to go to college. Mm-hmm. But deep down, I knew that college wasn't the right thing for me. Yeah. Um, you know, so when I, um, my junior year, I got introduced to the pentathlon. Then my, you know, I went back to the regular season of swimming and water polo. And then my, Summer, uh, my senior summer year, uh, I transitioned to uh, full-time training for the, the nationals, the mm-hmm. national pentathlon event. And, um, you know, it was a nine to five Monday through Friday type thing. I trained every day. We, we did three different events. And so the, for those that don't know what the modern pentathlon is, it's obviously running and swimming. But then there is the equestrian riding. Mm-hmm there is a bullseye style shooting and something that I became enamored with, which was fencing. I loved fencing. Fencing Mm -hmm. was awesome. And I went, I trained every day for that whole summer and my, um, it culminated with me competing at nationals. I think I can't remember exactly. I think I took fifth or sixth at nationals. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that was, you know, for somebody that just literally started the sport that summer, was a pretty big accomplishment. I, I yep. placed second out of our squad. So there was only, there was like six or seven guys on our squad. And I, you know, as a walk on basically was the second top performer there. So it was great. I, I, you know, but it was a feather in my cap. That was all it was. It was just another kind of um, jump point, if you will. Life as experience. soon as I was done with that. Yeah, exactly. So as soon as I was done with that, I literally was, Haze gray and underway went to boot camp. Like literally I got done with nationals at a week or two off and then I was gone for boot camp. Right. And that started my, you know, my naval career. I went to boot camp and to a school, then went out to buds, um, classed up, finished buds, went to my seal command and in route, we stopped off at airborne school, got to my seal command, went through STT and I was very lucky because, freak accident that occurred at my command where one of the one of the platoons was rehearsing for some of the upcoming missions that we would later do in the real world and one of the guys when he was fast roping uh, took a really hard landing and broke his leg okay and he his position was a point man and my when i was in stt which is seal tactical training that was one of the jobs that i did i did both i did i trained as a point and a rear security. So they're, inter- they're kind of interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And when, um, when that incident happened, I got called into the training officers, 
um, office and, or I'm sorry, the training chief's office. And I can remember it so vividly because he had such a thick Boston accent Mm -hmm. and you know, you get called into offices like that and it's, you know, just not, it doesn't always mean a good thing. Yeah. You know, that's usually something there. There could be something bad about to come down. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So I was kind of on pins and needles. I walked into his office. He sat me down. He's like, we're pulling you out of STT. And my heart sank. I was just like, what did I do wrong? I was like, oh my God, I'm getting kicked out. Oh, geez, what the hell? And he's like, he could just see it in my face. I, I must have been pale, white, you know, like ashen gray or some shit like that. And he's like, because we're going to, you're going to a platoon. I was like, what? What? Like, so I, I finished enough of STT that I was qualified enough to join a platoon. Because mm-hmm. technically, you know, there's there, STT is your final um, training before you are recognized as a as a, as a seal back then it's mm-hmm. kind of the same today, but it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had, I had, I had completed enough of STT that I was eligible to jump right into the platoon, which was great because, um, this platoon was stacked. This was a platoon that was preparing for, uh, some real world events that, uh, you know, were, they were basically handpicked. This platoon was almost handpicked for that. And the, when the point man broke his leg, I jumped into his spot, which was a, true honor in that sense because you know i my very first platoon was you know we we were downrange in a combat theater and that back then that was unheard of as a new guy Mm -hmm. unheard of for a new guy so i had an amazing career in naval special warfare i did a lot of wonderful things um you know I, i i feel very grateful for what i accomplished i managed to um to both work on the East coast and the West coast as an operator and as an instructor, I left the Navy uh, ironically because I wanted to start a family. And mm-hmm. I say ironically because uh, the reason why I left the Navy was that, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think I would, I, I didn't, I didn't think with the op tempo that it was going to match up with trying to be a dad or trying to be in a family. Mm-hmm. So I left the Navy and when I did, you know, we had these grand illusions that we're going to do things our way. We're going to, you know, we're going to strike out and blah, 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 which we did. Uh, and you know, this all happened like right around the GWAT, the beginning of the GWAT. And, you know, I kind of was lucky again where I got involved in working with the government early on out Mm -hmm. of the Navy and I was doing some stuff overseas. And when things kicked off, post 9-11, you know, I kind of lateraled over to the direct action stuff that mm-hmm. was happening back then. And this was very, I mean, you know, this was early, 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 uh, the, the contracting era, if mm-hmm. you will. This was, in fact, I was a, I was a plank owner with Blackwater mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, for the, for the people they put in theater for the very first, you know, job, if you will, that became this, industrial complex of into its own, you know, the military contractor world. Uh, so I did that for a while. And as I was doing that, you know, I was still training and, you know, training concepts was fledgling at that point. It wasn't until Oh three that we officially kind of incorporated into a real business. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's 20 plus years that we have been 
training, uh, you know, nationally recognized, worked with every organization, every agency, all branches within the special operations communities. So um, I, I'm, I feel so incredibly fortunate to have had that experience. And, you know, we're still, we're still doing that. You know, we're still, um, ha- you know, we still are constantly working with, with folks from all different types of walks of life to, uh, to improve their readiness, their operational readiness and their performance capabilities. And we do things a little differently than most people, which um, I know is kind of like hard to really, how, how is it different? And I think the biggest difference that we do is that um, I don't know how to do it any other way, which is the way that I was taught in the Navy, mm-hmm. which everything is built around performance standards. Mm-hmm. There is a standard that you have to meet and you either meet it and you move to the next, you know, you move past that gate or you don't meet it and you remediate or you get, you know, you get removed. It mm-hmm. was that simple. So when we started training, one of the things that I noticed in the industry that was severely lacking were standards. Everything was just attaboy. You know, you showed up, you got a certificate, you know, it was like a juice box award. It was a terrible, you know, it was a terrible for me, it was a terrible thing to get into because, you know, it, it just was counter to everything that I knew, you know, like how are these people able to, to claim these accolades when there's no, there's no performance behind it. Okay. There's no, so there's no kind of, or, kind of getting a little bit, a little bit strange here. Okay. So the, you know, we, you're, you're coming out, <laughs> you're coming out of the teams. And so yeah. you're, you're starting to do, you, you've, you've done the contractor thing with Blackwater and you're starting to do trident on your own and where exactly are you seeing this lack of standard are you seeing it with uh with law enforcement with military with civilians where where are you seeing this across all spectrums okay it was it was across all spectrums um some were worse i think um what about the contracting community itself Back then, it, it was good, like early on, because it was all hardcore. I mean, these were all hardcore trigger pullers. Right. These were all guys that were good to go. Mm-hmm. I left the contracting world because the standards started to change. And when I was looking behind me more than I was looking in front of me, it was it was time for me to move on. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, but in the in the training world, you know, it was a little different in the sense that there's a lot of established that we're talking back in the early two thousands okay. that really personified kind of the problems that I saw, which were, you know, how, how are we able to actually this person as being a marksman? How, where, where, how, just because they have completed a course or attended so many hours of training or whatever the case might be, doesn't necessarily mean that they're capable. It just means that they actually, you know, they attended training and they sat through it all and they, whatever. But, but my problem was with the curriculum. There mm-hmm. was a very hard, it was very difficult to actually see curriculum. And even to this day, I still think that that's one of the lacking. It's gotten much better. I will say this for sure. But back then the curriculum was very, you know, it wasn't, yeah. there wasn't, and, and I, I, I was very fortunate because I blended two disciplines together, uh, the military instructor. So for me, when I went to BUDS, I had to go through a four week long in, instructor course mm-hmm. on how to be an instructor. 
And then the Navy has very specific guidelines on how to be an instructor. A lot of that is built around performance standards. Like at Bud, you either meet them or you don't meet them. Right. Then I went to college and my college education was in adult learning, workforce education and development. Mm -hmm. So I blended those two disciplines together in the, well, it, it, it became kind of like a, a, a merging, if you will, of those two disciplines initially, not necessarily because I, I had, the, I knew these were the standards, but you know, I would sometimes have four months to work with guys to get them to meet these standards. Whereas now I only have two days, three days, maybe five days yeah. to try to, to try to do something similar. Right. So, you know, I was butting my head against the wall trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And that's where the adult learning kind of came in. And I had to like, I had to pump the brakes, take a step back and recognize, okay, there are three things. Number one, not everybody wants to put the effort in. Not everybody wants to do the work. Hey, Jeff, are you, uh, are you I mean, on speakerphone? Uh, no, I'm on my AirPods. Oh, okay. Because I was getting a little bit of digitization with your voice there. Sorry. Yeah, I can hmm. maybe... Uh, it's good now. It just, my, it's good now. It was just going oh, on for just a second. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah carry on. AirPods. My phone is right here on my desk. Okay. Um, so like, I lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, give me a second. Let me, let me retract. So I think we were talking about standards. And so, um, you know, when I, when I, when I started working in the industry, one of the things that I again noticed was that there was, a, there was not a clearly defined, observable, measurable, and repeatable standard mm -hmm. that people were meeting. And, you know, um, everybody's a little different, right? You know, law enforcement, military, private citizen, they're all, they all are the same yet different, right? right? If they're all using a handgun, that's one thing, but they have different mission requirements, different mission, you know, capabilities. <laughs> so there's, there's some differences there. And I had to figure out how to blend all that together. Mm -hmm. And what, what really kind of merged everything into the one symbiotic, kind of process was the was just meeting a was meeting a standard but it wasn't just an arbitrary standard it had to have some sort of relevancy and realism mm -hmm. involved in it and so that you know that meant that we had to study things that understand what was happening and one of the things that i'm a huge proponent for is that i don't know what kind of gunfight you're going to be in mm -hmm. nobody does you know all the video reviews that you see that are very popular these days are great and i'm not saying not to, not to um to take in that information but the bottom line is that we are all training for an unknown, unknowable event. The unknown, unknown. It's just that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we can't predict. You can't, you can't say with any certainty that it's always going to be this. It's always going to be that. It's always going to be this many rounds at this distance with this lighting condition, blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm -hmm. You just can't. And so one of the things that I brought from NSW to our training and our, and our programming is the well, just like an all-around defense. Like we want you to be well-rounded. We want you to be so adapted that it's easy for you to manage whatever situation you're placing. The in the in the teams, it became a, you know the mantra was let the situation let the situation dictate. Mm -hmm. So we would train across all these spectrums and cover all these different contingencies, and then you would just let the situation dictate. Yeah. Just read the read the issue, what's happening, and how can you respond? So, you know, it's, it goes back to this is a thinking man's game. People want to be hand-fed, and I'm like, well, that's not how it works. You can't just go out and practice a two-round drill at this distance and expect to be good. 
that's not how it's always going to work. You might be might, good at that know, two round drill. <laughs> that's it. And the problem is, is that statistics are also very alluring. Yeah. Like these statistics are like they're, they, they kind of, they exasperate everybody's degree of laziness. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, oh, if there's a statistic out there that says that all I need to do is practice for this, that means that they're not going to put the effort into practicing some of the other things. Right. And so the model that we like to use is like, I, when, when, you know, when I was in an operational capacity, I never wanted to be the weak link in the chain. Mm-hmm. So I practiced and I trained across the board and it was, it wasn't easy. Like, because the biggest problem that people make and the biggest mistake that I see being made is people only practicing what they're good at yeah, and not practicing their, their areas that they suck at. And that was the thing. Like I, there were some things I hated doing, but I'm like, okay, I, I, I just have I don't have to be the best at this. I just have to be good at it so that I'm not the weak link in the chain. That's all I have to do. <laughs> and I use that same philosophy with this, with the, uh, trying to impart this wisdom to other people. It's like, listen, I don't need you to have the fastest draw, be the most you know, expert bullseye shooter at this distance, or to be able to shoot at night under nods. I don't need you to be a master at all of those. I just need you to be good enough. Yeah. Just be good enough at all of those skills. So we've identified essential skills that are necessary for you to be what we consider to be a well-rounded, multifaceted, you know, mature gunfighter. Yeah. And when you have competency at all of those essential skills, then you have confidence and you no longer like you let the situation dictate. You just roll with it. Right. And that's that's how that's how we build. That's how and we don't we it's, it's called a forging process for a reason, because it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to pound away at that metal for a long time until you get that finished product that you are. And even then, it's still not fully sharpened. It's just it's just a working tool. Now you have to hone it to a razor's edge. Man, so we've only been talking about this for about, about uh, right now, about, I don't know, 18 minutes so far. And I'll tell you what, man, I got I got so much to unpack with all that shit you just said. And it's uh, it's really Come good. On, go for it. Man, it's okay. Go well. It comes up, you know what I do. I mean, you've been to my class. You know, we, we've been friends for a long time. Ooh. And so uh, we got tasked with uh, training a group. And it was, um, you know, and it, it was one of these things to where, you know, it's going to be a team. So we're all using the same stuff and everything else. And it, like the, the standard, the standard to make it legal, the standard to make it legal in as far as the state of Texas goes was so poor. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it wasn't even. It, it, it like it wasn't even a standard, you know, it just wasn't, it, it, it was like, um, you know, I, I, you have your Texas license to carry. Do you? I do. Yes, sir. Okay. So, um, whenever you remember the qual on that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Think you could pass it after a 12 pack. <laughs> <laughs> I do. My answer to that is yes. My answer to that is I, I can, can either confirm or deny that. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. We had a we had a buddy of ours that, you know, we had he was part of the special operations community, just happened to be local. And so we were out and we were we were discussing this qualification. And he stopped by and happened to have a former another guy who was former military, he was a former ranger out here, just hanging out, you know. And so he comes over and he brings his brother with him. And his brother is blind, Jeff. His brother's blind. Wow. I mean, with a white cane, everything, but he loved to shoot, you know. Wow. And so oh. uh, the, the buddy of mine, one guy was Air Force and the other guy was uh, Army. And so the Army guy just looked at me, he goes, 
this is going to be so much fun. So we went out and we actually conducted the Texas license to carry qual. We went out there, snapped our fingers right in front of the target. And this guy just like zoned in like uh, it, it was like Terminator, man. He, his hearing was so good. Mm. We got him to pass that mm-hmm. qual. He was blind, Jeff. He's blind. Wow. And he, he didn't just pass it. You know what I mean? I mean, he did very well on it. And it was like, uh, so, sure. it, you know, I, I'm, I was very, I'm very disappointed in the Texas license to Gary Qual, you know, and, I, and, and anybody, sure. who, anybody who has any sort of sense about guns would be. I mean, it, you're not working from a holster. There's no, you know, you're working from a table. You know, you're not working from a holster. There's no emergency reloads. There's no malfunction drills. There's no moving targets. There's no shooting and moving, nothing. And so, anyway, mm-hmm. back to this organization we were training. You know, we we went up and we told them, says, you know, there's going to be there's going to be quite a bit of stuff that you need to know, not the least of which is, you know, your handgun skills, but also other skills. So they we required they take a combatives class. So they did. And then Mm. we get out here and we do the we did the stuff with them with the handgun and we we drew off, you know, we drew reached out to a Mm. lot of special operations guys as well as the contracting community. And we put together a qual which consisted of all of those things. And there was a standard to it. You know what I mean? And we didn't mm-hmm. just train, we didn't just train for that qual. You know, we trained a lot of other stuff. In fact, um, it, the situation was slightly different in the qual than what they had already trained for, but we had just been, you know, been working on them so hard, you know, to get this. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a little one or two day thing. I mean, this, this was quite involved. And then, you know, the other things too, you know, we had, we made sure that, um, Throughout the year, uh, part of the contract is throughout the year they come back here, you know, for a day, like um, three times, I believe, you know, and then they have, um, you know, certain lessons plans that are sent out to them that they have to practice on their own, you know, to keep their skills up. Uh, mm-hmm. Fortunately, the the mm-hmm. company supplied them with, you know, everything that they needed, including training ammo. So it's really good because it's private sector type stuff, you know, so they don't have to worry about that. Nice. But, um, but mm-hmm. man, it's just like the the ones that went through there, you know, and it was, there was, you know, they were also vetted. They were vetted, you know, uh, by the group. And, you know, it was, it came out with a, a lot of really highly motivated people. But that qual is something, you know, that qualification, that standard was something I could be proud of. You know what I mean? It was something that, okay, sure. it does this, does this encompass everything that you have to do? Well, no, it doesn't. But what it does is it kind of gets you, it kind of gets you going a little bit, you know, it gets you going and kind of gets that mindset going to where, you know, and people in the class that, you know, afterward were saying, you know, I would go down to the grocery store and my mindset when I go to the grocery store now is so completely different than it was two weeks ago, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're out there, you're doing that. And then, you know, um, inside inside the facility we we also included you know some uh, force on force with that you know just you know sim rounds and shit and um man it was strange because it was um it was one of those things that it was pretty intense you know with you know simulators and all kinds of stuff like that and uh you know kind of really get that adrenaline going and you know we had to learn that you know just the way they just the way they did their normal everyday stuff would have to be a little bit different because all the doors are locked in this facility and in order to go from one building or one room to another, you have to have a key. Well, most of mm. them being right-handers, they had never done it with their left hand. And so now we're spending mm. an entire training block on let's get through that door left hand only, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, whenever we were on the range, y'all are shooting left-handed, you know, so <laughs> we need to be able to be able to do this both ways. So I was very, I'm very, very proud of that program just basically because it's like what you said, the standards, nice. the standards actually mean something, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean, does it mean you're going to win? Hell no, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but they're going to know you showed up. Well, and that's the hard part is like, you know, it's uh, those that are, those that are born, 
into this art form, if you will, understand or have learned long ago that it's a, it's a process, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's, it's not just a process that you complete, you know, you are constantly trying to continue to improve and get better and, and meet new standards and, and, imp- you know, find your areas of weaknesses that you can improve upon. And I think that one of the problems that I see uh, in the industry is that people get to a certain, and, and I shouldn't say this in a derogatory or negative way, mm-hmm. but it is part of what I see, which is people will get to a certain point where they're like, okay, all right, you know, this is good enough. Yeah. And I, I don't have a problem with that because they are, you know, this is a, we're talking about percentages. of. So if we were to take a step back and look at the percentages of gun owners versus the actual percentage of gun owners who have their LTC versus the percentage of gun owners that have their LTC and have attended training versus those that have their LTC attended training and continue their education regularly. You know, the so, number is you know, minuscule. That, it's minuscule. Yeah, exactly. It gets yeah. smaller and smaller and smaller as we go down. And it reminds me of something of Clint Smith told I, me a long time ago. It's like, a, somebody, you know, go to, go to training because Clint Smith from Thunder Ranch told me a long time ago. I mean, I used to work for him. And he says, yeah, he says, uh, a lot of people, they think that possession equals competence when it doesn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's just. That's it, 100% true. Yeah. And, and I think what my, one of my just causes in, at this point in my life is to create the opportunity for more of those people that, that you know, because that's a big, that's a broad net that we tossed out that shrinks down to a very, very small percentage, you know? And yep. so my just cause is to try to engage and connect with all of those, you know, first time gun owners, new gun owners, people that, you know, may or may not want to um, kind of like have that hard conversation where, okay, I, I need to do some work. I need to, I need training. I need to, I need to get better. Maybe that I don't need training. I just need to get better and to encourage them and welcome them and get them to, you know, to, to, to go out on a limb and experience the, what I consider to be an incredibly rewarding journey, which is, you know, the pursuit of excellence. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what it is, what the task is, whatever you're doing, you know, to, to really engage in that pursuit of excellence, I believe is a worthy endeavor for everybody. For Agreed. Anybody. Agreed. And so we're trying, we're trying to get people to get to that level, to get to that, not level, but to get to that threshold, if you will, take that step into the unknown, become comfortable being uncomfortable, because that's another deterrent is that this perception that, um, you know, people don't want to look bad by not knowing what they're doing or not being as good as their peers or, right maybe they have some preconceived notion because of Hollywood and TV about how easy it is. And then they're devastated when they discover that it's not that easy, but it's actually, <laughs> it takes work. It's, it, it's a, let me back up. It's a simple skill that is not easy to master. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was just thinking about that. You know, I, I, I just sent a guy up to you just really, really brought that home, which you just said, cause he, he came here and it was, uh, you know, man, this, this, I mean, he had never, he had never shot a bolt gun before. You know what I mean? It was like, it was mm. insane. 
And he was he worked so hard all week. I mean, he really put his heart into it, and he was thinking about it the whole time. He says, "Damn, I'm I'm dreaming about mills and and leads and wind holds." And <laughs> I said, "Well, good for you, man. Good for you. That's that's the way it is." But you know, it's kind of one of those things when you talk about the comfort. You know, because I usually get people in shooting in some alternate positions that are uncomfortable, or you know, somebody a right-handed shooter who's never shot left-handed with a with a scope rifle, and they're they're having such a hard time. I said, "Man, this is really uncomfortable." I said, "Well." Two things. First, whenever you go home tonight, uh, grab your rifle, go into a dark room, and then gently stroke it and say, do you care if I'm comfortable or not? And you're going to be met with stony silence. Mm -hmm. The rifle doesn't care. It just wants to be shot correctly. However, I will tell you this. The uncomfortable, the more you practice, becomes acceptable. The more you practice, becomes comfortable. And so they typically kind of get that by the end of it. So yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And you know, that that uh, you know, talking about you know, finding that that stuff that's uncomfortable and being uncomfortable or being comfortable with uncomfortable. I like that, and and it it, it just it just kind of leads me to that thing. You know, it's you know, it, we could do as much as we want, and uh, even as students, I'm not speaking as an instructor here. But we we can do as much as we want, but you know, until until we're able to just say, you know what, I I need to change my mindset because I want to be good at this. Mm. And you know what? After after my 55 plus years just like you, it's kind of like it's hard work. You know what I mean? You got to go out and do that. You know and, and it's not you I guess you have to get to the point to where it's a mindset to where you're saying, "Okay, this is not hard work. You know, this is something this is like a, a little self-improvement. You know, this is my yoga session." You know, so it, it works out. Mm. I agree. I agree. Well, cool, man. Well, listen, um, what are you doing these days? So we're still trudging along, uh, moving forward with uh, what, you know, what our main objectives are, which is bringing, you know, high caliber training and education to the masses. Um, But within like the last, definitely, I would say like the last six to eight years, we have pivoted slightly to the concealed carry market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it took a lot of the stuff that I did down range in, uh, non-permissive environments mm-hmm. and we brought it to the masses. Um, so, you know, I wrote a book, I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago. I think it's been out now. You didn't send me a copy carry manual. I'm sorry. You I should make be. Sure you get one. As soon as I write a book, I'm going to send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But it's a tooth to tail treaty on concealed carry. Yeah. And it's designed to answer a lot of questions. It's designed to get people out there to train. It's designed to get them to kind of like be uh, of the mindset about, you know, what it really takes to be uh, at that level. Um, we're doing a lot of the concealed carry work. My, you know, every year is a little different. You know, we have the luxury of having a long, a lot of longstanding clients and customers that will call us because they want us to do the same thing that we've always done for them. But, you know, we also have a lot of customers that want us to do something different for them. Mm-hmm. And so every year it's a little different. We might be doing a lot more rifle work. We might be doing a lot more handgun work, might be doing a lot more concealed carry work, a lot more tactical work. Um, one of the things that we do really well is we take just a general purpose carbine, you know, an AR 15, mm-hmm. very, you know, vanilla, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we work at pushing that thing out as far as we can. Now, most of the time we get to about 300 meters and mm-hmm. that's about where the skill level skill transfer ends. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it for us to keep going further than that. It, and it's not because the equipment, uh, it's really the shooter's skill at a certain point that most of the people that are coming to these classes have done a lot of work at the 50 and in, but the moment we start pushing out past that, and particularly when we introduce 
positions and all different types of things, they really kind of find themselves a little, I wouldn't say out of sorts, but it's a little bit more challenging. So our, our mid-range rifle classes have become very popular. I think this year we've got like three. We've been requested to do three of them this year, which is a little more than normal. Mm-hmm. And I love that class. That class, that is one of my favorite classes because that to me epitomizes a rifleman. Mm-hmm. That is what I consider to be a rifleman's course. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of it because I had a teammate. He was actually a classmate of mine who called me up. And this was um, when we were making the transition from Iraq to Afghanistan. NSW was making the transition. And so in Iraq, you know, the gunfight engagement distances were 50 meters in. Mm-hmm. And the moment that we we're moving out to Afghanistan, they're now looking at 200 to 500. Right. And that was out. That was just outside of that threshold that they were used to working at. And so what ended up happening was, um, classmate called me up and he's like, "Hey, listen, here's the problem, you know." And and he he went on to explain to me what he observed. So he was the the chief of the sniper cell, and on one of his uh, for a task unit, and one of the one of their missions, one of his recon teams was pushing out to put eyes on. A, a village that had an HVT and they move out in their vehicles to a certain distance, like about two or three terrain features away, they dismount and they are going to move on foot from there. And they just so happened to run into an enemy patrol mm-hmm. and the enemy patrol was off on the ridge line. So mm-hmm. they're down in the Valley and they're, the, they got contacted with about a 12 man patrol at the, from the high ground. Mm-hmm. And they were just—I mean—they got—they had heavy weapons, they had you know PKMs and a bunch of other things that were bearing down on them. And Jason said, you know, the guys. This was all part of the debrief. Uh, they initially were huddled up behind the vehicle, which was just getting riddled. So they started to break away from the vehicle and they started to push out. And you know, with with a little bit of effort, they were able to—they won the gunfight. You know, there's four guys on the in the on the ground versus twelve guys on the high ground, and you know, they pushed out and they just these guys because they they had the superior marksmanship skills. These were all part of the sniper cell. These were guys that were doing reconnaissance missions on a regular basis. And and it, and it illustrated to Jason the importance behind basic rifle marksmanship skills. Mm-hmm. You know, that because what they did was nothing more than just basic rifle skills. Right. They just were able to do it better than those guys. And they had right. better equipment, too. They, they were running better gloves than those guys were. Yeah. Uh, so he called me up and asked me to put together a program, which we did um, for both. Well, we did it for the West Coast trade at uh, where we went out there and we ran these guys with the, you know, just the standard, the standard issue M4, mm-hmm. nothing fancy out to about 500. Uh, then we rolled that course into a public version that we only push out to 300. Mm-hmm. So we got that doing a lot of that. Um I'll be at a lot of conferences. I'll be speaking at a lot of conferences. We get asked to do a lot of conference engagement. I think um, most of the conferences that we're going to be speaking at will all have something to do with concealed carry. Uh, you know, we've become uh, kind of like a de facto subject matter expert on micro compact pistols mm-hmm. for concealed carry. So What's we'll your be favorite? doing a lot of hands down the P365 from SIG. Really? It's just hard to beat that thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is. It is hard to beat it for what it what it what it brings to the table compared to everything else in the market. I mean, there's a lot of other good options, mm-hmm. you know, between um, the the Hellcat from Springfield, the MMP um, Shield 2.0 from Smith and Wesson. The, those are good. I mean, the Glock 43s and 40, 43Xs are not bad as well, but 
man, I'll tell you for the size and capacity and capability, it's hard to beat that P365. It just really is. Yeah. So, um, you're a proponent of, uh, appendix carry. I, we teach it. I don't actually carry appendix, mm -hmm. um, but you know, as part of our concealed carry program, that's something that we'll cover for those that are interested in learning more about it and doing it safely. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, when I first carried concealed performance of my duties overseas, it was like 1988 mm -hmm. and I was given, um, a loadout of which I had the very first inside the waistband holster. I'd never seen one before. Mm -hmm. At that time we were only running tactical fire rigs. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this thing like, like I, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I mean, you could have handed me, I don't know something. I didn't, I did not know what this thing was. I was trying to figure out how to use it. And the chief in the armor, our armory bad. And he just goes to me. So, so subtle. Like he's like, Hey man, it goes inside your pants. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so the the holster was a, it was a Bianchi soft-sided holster with a thumb break and a spring clip mm -hmm. that was the retention. And it was, it wasn't bad for its time, mm -hmm. but it was, when I looked at it closer, it said Beretta 92F and I'm running a SIG 226. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't even use the damn thing. So mm -hmm. the first time that I carried down range was in appendix with a 226 yeah. no holster yeah so over the years you know i i really explored a lot of different things and i carried appendix for a very long time but it just you know over the years i moved back to strong side and, and that's what i carry predominantly uh, i i do a lot of you know when we do our low vis work that means sometimes doing things from different perspectives so sometimes that means ankle holsters pocket holsters off body carry yeah. Uh, which are things, those are the subject matters that we really excel at for, for our low vis operations type stuff. Um, but the P3, that's the nice thing about the P365 is that I can, it can fulfill all those roles. Mm -hmm. I can carry it in an ankle. I can carry it in a pocket. I can carry it off body. Uh, you know, it's more than capable of, you know, doing things, you know, you have the capacity, you have the, you can upgrade the capacity to the 12 round or 15 round. And what a lot of people don't know is the P365 X macro 17 round magazines will also fit in all the other 365 guns hmm. so you can upgrade to 17 rounds yeah wow sounds good where can people find you yeah they go to the website that's the best uh tridentconcepts.com all of our social media engagement we do a lot of stuff on social media uh, we try to do as much as you know we can it's obviously not as much as a lot of other people do but we we put out a lot of content a lot of information there's plenty of blogs on our website, a lot of videos on our YouTube channel. So, you know, all of that is available on our website, tridentconcepts.com. Very good. When are you going to get back down here? Oof, man, I wish I could. I wish I could. Um, well, because I know your scope rifle skills are probably, probably been put on the back burner a little bit and you, you had a pretty good there for a while. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie. I got outperformed by my, my younger son. There's no question about it. He really took to that like fish to water. I was yeah, so but that's a moment of pride for um, you. <laughs> oh, it was. I was tickled pig. In fact, we talk about that. Um, he now lives with his mother in Arizona, mm -hmm. but we talk about that trip uh, on a regular basis. And he's, he's, made, he's made it clear that he would love to go back. It's just, you know, he's got to come here long enough uh of a stay that we can coordinate with your schedule to be able to get back down there but yeah oh, i would love to do that well cool man um, just you know and and i'm i'm really also 
you know, I'm very comfortable in my, my lane, which is like, again, extending out to that 300. So it's nice to get pushed outside my comfort zone, pushing out to a thousand, trying to make the five, five, six gun work as best as they can at those ranges. So I felt, yeah. I felt very humbled by that. And in fact, you would be proud of me. I got to tell you this story. You'd be very proud of me. I represented rifles only very well <laughs> in this one little kind of, I wouldn't say competition, but it was a, um, it was a bet, if you will. Okay. Uh, so we went up to Vortex. Vortex has their uh, like a three three one day uh, program. You know they they kind of escalate. You know uh, scope rifle one, scope rifle two, scope rifle three. You can mm-hmm. take them individually. You can take all three of them at one time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I went up there with the AR fifteen crew to uh, do kind of like a side by side comparison. Mm-hmm. And my uh, my buddy that we went up there that I was shooting against, he went up there shooting a um a daniel defense kind of can't remember what their model was but it's their bolt gun mm-hmm. daniel defense chambered in six five mm-hmm. and i shot a 16 inch auto from daniel defense in seven six two and i was so happy because i was just i just was competing against all these other guys i mean i think i was the only one there was maybe two other guys that had a, a rifle chambered in seven six two everybody else was shooting something in the six plus range mm-hmm. And I was the only one that had a 16 inch barrel. Everybody else was running, you know, 18 to 20 plus inch barrels. Right. Uh, and I was able to not only hold my own, but actually I didn't take the top shooter. The last drill that generated the top shooter, um, I kind of fluffed it on that one. But overall, I outperformed everybody across the board until that last drill. So, and especially my 6'5 Patriot there, he, uh, yeah, even even so, technology. So the point behind this is technology is great. Yeah. The you know the the amount of work that he had to do to just make that six five work, as you know, is not as much as I had to with right. a seven six two seven six two gas gun. Right. So um, I was very very happy with that. And I, you would have been proud. Uh, I am, and you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I've told you about it before, and you've told me, and I'll tell everybody. It's all about those fundamentals, man. Starts with an F and ends with. Man, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, cool deal, brother. Well, listen, uh, get down and see us when you can send me a copy of the book. And I hope that, uh, I hope everything goes good for you in the future. And if there's ever anything that rifles only can do to assist, please let us know. And thank you again for taking the time. It's always my pleasure. All right. Very good. Let me, uh, let me turn on some music here and I'll outro this and I'll be right back with you, Jeff. Hang on. You, you got it. Remember, the brawl's coming up a month away. Big prizes. Come out and check it out. There's going to be a great competition, changing up about 30% of the events this year. So you'll see some really old school stuff going on. I think you're going to like it. www.riflesonly.com. 